It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Stephanie Price, and you're listening to Underwood and Flinch Underground. Thank you, Stephanie. It most certainly is. That was long-time listener and patron Stephanie Price introducing this episode of Underwood and Flinch Underground back when it premiered at Patreon six and a half years ago in December 2016. Anyway, hello, listeners in 2023. I hope you're well and all psyched for what I'm about to lay on your ear holes. But before I do that, let's return to that original introduction so we can be brought up to date on the story. So, first of all, a recap on our situation. The current story thread follows Detective Inspector Claire Redmond. Claire, as you may recall, has just recently had an encounter with Lydia Flinch in a pub hotel in London, about which she remembers absolutely nothing. What she does have, however, is a very determined need to be at the heart of the London vampire investigation. But that isn't going to be easy, because her boss, Charles Coleridge, has taken her off the case and put DCI Guy Valentine in charge. Now, Coleridge was a close colleague of Claire's father, Harry, and he's also Claire's godfather. It was Coleridge who came around to Claire's house that night when she was a kid uh, to take her father away and have him committed to a mental hospital. Anyway, in our last episode, Claire invited DCI Valentine out for lunch and tried to get him to spill the beans on the London vampire, the OCU, and to take her to the mysterious Falconbridge police station, a place which seems to her to be nothing more than a gardener's lodge at the edge of Battersea Park. Valentine didn't take kindly to Claire's conduct, and when she threatened to call the London Evening Courier to tell them all she knew, he told her that if she didn't cease and desist, she'd end up in the same place as her old man. Hmm. Well, that led to Claire calling Coleridge, and with him still on the line, confronting Valentine about what he'd said and done. The end result of that was that she and Valentine were summoned to Coleridge's office, where he now awaits them and us in... Underwood and Flinch Season 4 Underground Written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett. This podcast is intended for an adult audience. 
episode 10. Charles Coleridge stood looking out over the River Thames from the window of his office in the Metropolitan Police sub-headquarters on Victoria Embankment. Thick, cumulus nimbus clouds were amassing beyond the county hall and the London Eye, moving ever closer to darken the sky and river. The first drops of rain began to tap quietly against the glass, calling Coleridge's attention to the face of the man reflected there. The image grew sharper as the sky grew darker, like a ghost emerging from the shadows. How much younger he had been when he and Harry Redmond had first been called into this office by its then-resident, the long-departed Frank Lester. It had been the late seventies, and Lester, who had been a captain in the parachute regiment until a bad landing forced his early retirement, had been a godlike figure to them. He often wondered if that was how the men and women under his command viewed him today. Probably not. He was nothing like Lester, too soft by half. But if they did, Valentine and Redmond ought to be shaking in their boots right now. They were on their way to him, each in their own cars. He had just got off the phone with Valentine, who'd been filling him in further on what had happened at the restaurant. As if the London vampire murders weren't enough, now he had this to deal with as well. The rain began to fall heavily, lashing against the window and liquefying the view of the world outside. But Coleridge wasn't looking out into the present. He was looking back into the past. The reflected office was as it had been in 1978. Frank Lester sat at the desk, and opposite him sat Harry Redmond and his younger self. Coleridge closed his eyes. I tried, Harry. I did all I could. The phone on his desk gave a sharp chirp, and he turned back to reality. He picked up the receiver and said quietly, Yes? Chief Detective Inspector Valentine and Detective Inspector Redmond are here for you, sir. Thank you, Susan. Coleridge had told his secretary not to notify him until both of them had arrived. Send them in, please. He returned to the window. In the reflection of the room, he saw the door open and Valentine step aside to allow Redmond to enter first, which she did without a word. Valentine followed her in closing the door behind him. Coleridge watched their reflections as they hovered behind the two seats on the opposite side of his desk. Without turning, he said, Sit down. They did so. Redmond sat rigidly upright, her body tense and angled away from Valentine. In contrast, Valentine sat reclined in his seat with one leg crossed over the other knee. Their eyes were on Coleridge. He waited, listening to the rain patter against the window, his eyes now drawn to a river cruiser laden with tourists gliding slowly by. When the boat had sailed past, he said, "'You disappoint me, Redmond.' "'Sir,' said Clare, "'I have to—' "'Silence, please,' said Coleridge. "'You'll get your chance to speak. "'Valentine has been filling me in on the phone since he left you. "'Frankly, I've never heard anything like it.' He turned around to face her. 
Coppers sneaking off to leak information to the press on the sly, whether for financial gain or for moral reasons, yes. But this? You actually think you can blackmail us with going to the press unless we do as you demand? It's not blackmail, sir. Blackmail, coercion, call it whatever you like. It still comes down to the same thing. You are threatening to divulge classified information to the national media unless we do what you want. Can you give me one reason, just one, why I shouldn't have you arrested? Redmond locked eyes with him. Or committed, even. Less chance of my being heard from inside a padded cell. Coleridge's face darkened. Don't you dare. Don't you dare to even imply such a thing. The implication wasn't mine, sir. I'm only repeating what DCI Valentine said at the end of our meeting. Yes. Coleridge glowered at Valentine. So he's told me. And we'll get to that soon enough. But first, I want to know just what on earth has possessed you to think that you can carry on in this way. Surely you know this could be the end of your career? Demanding that Valentine take you to Falconbridge, a place you have absolutely no clearance to go to, so that you can start poking around in what you know damn well is classified information? I wouldn't have actually done it, sir, said Claire. I was just bluffing. Bluffing? What the hell do you mean you were bluffing? DCI Valentine wasn't... She glanced at Valentine. He wasn't cooperating with me. Coleridge could hardly believe his ears. This wasn't the Claire Redmond he knew. And yet, her expression was completely earnest. She genuinely believed what she was saying. Not cooperating with you. By which you mean he wasn't prepared to just idly gossip about state secrets. No, sir. I mean he was sticking to your serial killer story and making out like I was mad for not buying into it. But I don't buy into it and I'm not bloody mad. Look, sir, there's no point in him or you or anyone else lying to me any more, because I know what's going on, what's really going on. Oh, yes, Coleridge nodded. Yes, Valentine told me all about your theory, how the murderer isn't actually a serial killer, but is in fact a pair of vampires. That is correct, sir. And how Valentine and I are part of a secret department in the police force that's hunting these vampires down? Yes, sir. The OCU. The Occult Crimes Unit, isn't that right? It is, sir. And your father, he was also an operative of this unit? Yes, sir. And now you believe that he wasn't really mentally ill, but that we had him committed to uh, get him out of the way for some reason? Well, I don't know that with any certainty, sir. I didn't think it at all until DCI Valentine implied it earlier. Yes, as you said on the phone... He turned to Valentine. Valentine, what do you have to say to that? Valentine sat up. Sir, I certainly didn't mean to give that impression. I think D.I. Redmond misinterpreted what I was saying. Claire turned to him. I think your exact words were that if I went to the press, I would end up in the same place as my old man. How else should I have interpreted that, Inspector? Valentine's face flushed. Look, if I said that, then I'm sorry. But damn it all, Redmond, you had me wound up to the point where I just lost it. I had to say something to stop you. You had the evening courier on the phone, for God's sake. It wasn't connected. It's like I said, I was just bluffing. Well, so you say, but it didn't look like that to me. Nevertheless. All right, Coleridge intervened. Enough. What Valentine said was both stupid and wrong, but his intentions, however tactlessly conveyed, were in the best interests of both the law and the public good. Yours, however, 
he pointed at Claire, were not. Sir, my intentions were to get the truth of who or what is responsible for these murders, not because I wanted to take it to the press, but because I want to help stop it. I have to. What do you mean you have to, Redmond? This isn't your case anymore. No, because it's OCU now, and I wouldn't understand any of that since I'm not in the OCU. Isn't that right? Yes. Claire was thrown by his reply. What? Redmond, you're not in trouble for being a good detective. You're in trouble for threatening to go to the media with classified information. But, wait, are you saying I'm right? Coleridge held her gaze for a few moments, then straightened and walked to the window. With his back to the room, he said, The last promise I made to your father before he died was that I would keep you and your mother safe. Safe? Safe from what? From the things that, towards the end, your father was so very afraid of. I swore to him that I'd protect you, and I'd done a pretty good job of it until yesterday morning. Just my luck that those two bodies should turn up on your patch, and while you were on duty, had it been anyone else, our explanation that a serial killer was the culprit would have been accepted without question. He looked back over his shoulder to Claire. But not you. Of all the coppers in London, only one, only Harry Redmond's daughter, would have questioned our sensible, rational version of events. He returned to his desk where he sat down and opened the bottom drawer. He took out a half bottle of scotch and three glasses. I could go on with the charade, to lie in order to protect you as I promised your father I would, but it's clear from what Valentine's told me and from what you're saying now that that's not going to wash. You're not going to go quietly, are you, Claire? No, sir. No, of course you're not. Too much like your old man. Coleridge poured out three drinks and set two of the glasses in the middle of the desk. He sat back with the third and gestured for present company to join him. Valentine took a glass. Claire didn't. Coleridge took a sip of his drink, savoured the flavour, then looked Claire straight in the eyes. Yes, Inspector Redmond, you're right. There is no ongoing serial killer case. We do indeed believe that vampires are responsible for these murders. Oh, my God, said Claire quietly. I knew it. I just didn't. How many are there? Two, possibly three. Forensics found one set of bloody footprints at the church and another two sets of prints in sand deposits around the skip, consistent with people carrying something heavy between them. Jesus Christ! But what about the OCU? Is that real too? It is. And you, both of you, are in it? We are. And so my dad, he was... One of us, Coleridge smiled. He was indeed, and an outstanding officer he was too. Claire reached for the glass of whiskey he'd offered her and took a generous sip. She winced as she swallowed, then said, But what about his... his illness? Coleridge sat back and steepled his fingers. I'm afraid that was also real. Towards the end, Harry was a danger, not only to himself, but also to you and your mother. On the night we took him away, he telephoned me. 
He said vampires were coming for him and for you and your mother. The only way he believed he could save you from the damnation of becoming one of them was, well, he had a gun. Oh my God, said Claire. You mean he was going to kill us? That was his fear, yes. He wanted us to help him to come and fend his attackers off. If we failed, then he would do what he had to do. Oh, God, poor Dad. We knew that Harry suspected he was onto a possible vampire threat, but Coleridge shook his head. Nothing like this. So we came immediately, armed and ready for anything. He'd left the door on the latch for us, and we were able to come straight in. We found him with suitcases packed and fighting with your mother, trying to get you all away to safety. I remember, said Claire. Do you remember how he was? Claire nodded, eyes downcast. I'm sorry, Claire. As you know, we took him into care. We left a 24-hour guard on your house, just in case there was anything in what he was saying. It was there for weeks afterwards, but nothing ever came. But you said he was onto a possible vampire threat. What was that? It was never really clear what went on with Harry's last case. He'd been working undercover, alone, trying to infiltrate a satanic coven in Richmond. He believed the group were behind a string of disappearances in the area. Prostitutes, male and female, abducted for the purpose of human sacrifice... For obvious reasons, I didn't see too much of him at that time, but on one occasion, shortly after he'd managed to gain the trust of one of the coven, he told me how he thought he'd stumbled onto something a lot bigger than he'd first believed. Among the coven, there was talk of a vampire, and not just any vampire, but some kind of major player. Harry was excited by this, and not a little nervous. Neither he nor I had ever actually had dealings with a vampire since the battle to purge them from the country had all but been won in the 50s and 60s. Anyway, he told me he was going to report his findings to Lester, our boss at the time, and fingers crossed we'd soon be able to launch a raid and bag the lot of them. But it didn't play out like that. The next time I saw him was the night we've just been talking about when we came to take him away. He swirled the contents of his glass before draining it and setting it down. Early the next morning, we raided the house he'd been investigating in Richmond, but there was nothing. Nothing incriminating, anyway. The occupier was a self-proclaimed white wizard called Elliot Beardsley. We took him in for questioning, along with members of his coven— they were harmless, a bunch of aging pagans into prancing about naked, screwing each other and getting pissed. We carried out an extensive search of the house, but there were no signs of the kidnapped prostitutes anywhere. There was an altar in the cellar, but no traces of blood, not even a chicken's. It looked like Harry had manufactured it all as part of his delusion. That was what the doctors said he had, a psychotic delusion. But... I couldn't accept that. I couldn't believe that Harry could have lost his mind so completely in such a short space of time. I was able to persuade Frank Lester to let me work with the doctors at the hospital to try to get to the bottom of Harry's delusion. Something had to be at the root cause of it all, and I wanted to know what. It wasn't easy, 
By that stage, he was often raving and incoherent. The doctors had to keep him sedated and straitjacketed most of the time, and getting answers to any questions was impossible. However, using a combination of drugs and deep hypnosis, we were gradually able to get through to him. He was able to recount everything that had happened, but only up to a point. He told us in detail how he'd managed to infiltrate the coven and had partaken in rituals, though thankfully none involving human sacrifice. He said that the kidnapped victims were being held at another location that he was never privy to, but he did, however, discover that they weren't to be sacrificed, at least not in any conventional sense. No, they were intended as food for this vampire. Harry would grow distressed and frightened whenever he talked about the vampire. It would jolt him completely out of the trance, screaming and tearful. The doctors told me that if what we needed to know was in there, it was behind a wall in Harry's mind, a, a wall of fear. It could be possible to push through this barrier, but only by increasing the drug dosage to prevent him from waking up during the procedure. They said it could be dangerous. Coleridge, who had been gazing at a paperweight on his desk, now looked up at Redmond. I hope you can understand just how much was at stake, Claire. We had to know as much as we could about that vampire. If he was at large in London... It's okay, sir. Please go on. Coleridge nodded, grateful for the understanding. So... Lester approved the more intensive techniques, and sure enough, we were able to get through the wall in Harry's mind. Up to then, it hadn't been clear exactly what kind of contact, if any, Harry had had with the vampire, but now we discovered he'd been very close indeed. He'd been fascinated by him. He'd what? said Claire. He'd been fascinated, which is to say that we weren't the first to be intruding into Harry's mind. The vampire had been there before us. Fascination is one of their most powerful weapons. It's like hypnosis, only far, far more powerful. In hypnosis, you can't get someone to do something that they don't want to do, despite what the stage hypnotists would have you believe. All those willing volunteers making fools of themselves in front of an audience are just that, willing. They go along with it. They want to do it. But if you asked one of them to, say, shoot themselves, well, that would be it. They'd wake up immediately. But not so with someone who's been fascinated. A victim of fascination will kill themselves or anyone else they've been ordered to, and they won't blink an eyelid in doing it. But Harry's vampire hadn't wanted that. He didn't want a police detective dying in suspicious circumstances. That would only have intensified the police investigation. No, all he wanted was for Harry to be locked away and forgotten about. So instead of killing him, he made him mad. Coleridge poured himself another drink. When we went back to talk again to Elliot Beardsley, we found he'd disappeared and the house was up for rent. We tried to trace him through the landlord, but there was no trail to follow. The whole rental had been done under false names. Cash up front, no questions asked. But what about my dad? What happened to him? Coleridge looked down into his drink. 
he passed away. It was, as you've always been told, a heart attack. The doctors say it was brought on by the fear he was experiencing. He couldn't wake up to escape from it, and his heart, it just gave out. I'm so sorry, Claire. It's all right, sir. In a way, I'm relieved. At least I have some answers that make sense to me now. I'm sure I would have done the same thing if I'd been in your position. Was he able to tell you anything before he died? Yes, he was able to tell us the vampire's name. Heinrich Volkmann. Possibly an alias, as Harry said he spoke with an American accent. Is he someone you have any record of? Prior to this incident, no. Was Dad able to give you a description at all? Just a basic one. Casually dressed man in his early thirties. Dark, collar-length hair. His one distinguishing feature was a faint scar on his left cheek. That doesn't match anything in your files either. No, but then I'm afraid our files are regrettably incomplete, and that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Valentine tells me you said you had some OCU case files when you were a kid, but that your mother destroyed them. Yes, sir. Dad had some things, keepsakes from his old cases, I suppose you could call them. There were files amongst them. After his death, I came home one day and Mum was burning it all. I tried to save some of it, but she came after me and took it away. I never saw any of it again, so I presume she finished what she'd started. Not quite. Diane, your mother, gave me those files. There were only three of them, and they all related to Harry's own cases. But what I need to know from you now is, were there any more? Any more files? Yes. Valentine tells me you still have Harry's ring, so clearly your mother didn't get everything from you. No, sir. I, I managed to hide his ring and an ID card, but only because they were small. Mum took everything else. You're absolutely certain of that. I promise you there'll be no repercussions. I just want the files. Yes, sir. I'm positive. There's nothing else. Damn! Coleridge slapped the arm of his chair. Ah, oh, well, I suppose it was too much to hope for. Just how many files are you missing, sir? Dozens. Really? And you don't know how they disappeared? No. Stolen, most likely, though we've no idea by whom. Do you know when it happened? No. They weren't noticed as missing till the OCU records were computerized in the late 80s. You're young. You can only imagine what life was like before computers. But there were literally thousands of paper files down in Falconbridge dating all the way back to the Victorian era. It's hardly surprising that no one noticed some of them had gone missing. Do you know what cases they relate to? No. Once it was discovered, we considered the possibility that maybe Harry had taken them. Diane told me that she'd given me all the files he'd taken, but still... I had a secret search of the house undertaken when you and she were out, just to be sure. They found nothing, not even your father's ring. He smiled. Where did you keep it hidden? Buried in an old tobacco tin in the garden, said Claire. I dug it up when I was fifteen. Well, you always were a smart kid, and that brings me to my next question. Just what are we going to do with you now, Detective Inspector? Claire shifted in her seat. I don't know, sir, but for what it's worth, I apologise. I ought to throw the book at you. Yes, sir. Can you give me any reason why I shouldn't? 
Well, yes. To be honest, I think you need me. I don't know what it takes to become an officer of the OCU, but if I don't qualify, I don't know who does. I'm a bloody good detective. I knew what was going on in this London vampire case before you or Valentine were anywhere near it, and if you hadn't taken me off it, well, I may well have cracked it by now. <laughs> really? said Coleridge, before adding sarcastically, Well, I messed up there, didn't I? I won't let you down, sir. And what about my promise to your father, that I would keep you safe? That's why I've always kept you away from this department up until now. What do you think he would say? I think he would be proud of us both, sir. He wasn't in his right mind when he asked you to make that promise. If we could ask him now, I think he'd say differently. Hmm, quite possibly, said Coleridge. Well, there's no doubt you have the right stuff for the job, and your OCU family, as is Valentine here. Valentine held up his hand to Claire and waggled his ring finger. My dad's gave it to me when I joined the department. Yes, and how many times have I told you not to wear it in public, Valentine? Take it off, right now. Yes, sir, said Valentine. He twisted the ring off and slipped it into his jacket pocket. Sorry, it uh, won't happen again. You're damn right it won't, said Coleridge. The bloody thing's a dead giveaway to anyone, or anything, that knows what they're looking for. And since we've a vampire or two in town, we can't take any chances. What does it mean? said Claire. The ring. I'm afraid that's confidential, Redmond. You can't know that unless you're made an OCU officer. And I'm afraid I'm still a long way from decided on whether you will be or not. Please, sir, said Claire with a sudden urgency in her voice. I really want this. Coleridge was surprised by her tone. Yes, as your actions today make abundantly clear. However, I feel I need some time to think this over. For now, just be grateful I'm not firing you. Yes, I am grateful, but please, I... Redmond faltered, and Coleridge noticed she was wringing her hands. She appeared to be experiencing a great level of stress. I can't be on the outside of this, she continued. It's where I belong. I have to be at the heart of this investigation, to be part of the team that brings these monsters to justice. And if we refuse, said Valentine, what then, a quick call to the courier? Claire shot Valentine a look of undisguised hatred. Coleridge noted it with interest. She had grounds to be angry with him, but there was murder in her eyes. Then she said, I told you I was bluffing. How many times do I have to say it? Well, I'm not altogether convinced that you were bluffing, said Valentine. He turned to Coleridge. I have to say I advise against appointing D.I. Redmond, sir. I don't feel she can be trusted. Well, thankfully, it's not up to you, D.C.I. Valentine, said Claire. That's enough, said Coleridge. He sat back in his chair, his eyes not leaving Claire's face for a moment. Let's say that I were to offer you a position, Redmond. The OCU is a top-secret department. You can't discuss it with anyone, not family, friends, not even colleagues. Yes, sir, I understand. It's not a full-time posting. It's not even a full-time department. Most of the time, Falconbridge is closed. But it does have a designation as a CID special operations base, and that special operation is us. 
So if you were to join the OCU, you wouldn't change your current police station, and for most of the 365 days of the year, you'd still be on duty with DS Beck. But sometimes, a crime will be committed that doesn't sit within the boundaries of normal police operations, and then you will be called. Our forebears classified these crimes as occult, hence the name of the department. Nowadays, our technical designation is simply Falconbridge CID, but to ourselves and our retired brethren, we are and ever shall be the Occult Crimes Unit. Make no mistake, Redmond, the things we deal with are often real and terrible. Though CU isn't a department you should join without careful consideration. As I say, I'm still to make up my mind as to whether I want to offer you the position, but I think you also should take a few days to think it over. I don't need a couple of days, sir, said Claire with the same strange urgency. I've been ready for this my whole adult life. I know what it is we face, and I am not afraid. Sir, I have to be at the heart of this investigation, and I am ready to do whatever needs to be done. Coleridge frowned slightly. Interesting. That's the second time you've used that phrase. What phrase? You said you had to be at the heart of this investigation. Claire shrugged. Yes, and I do, sir. It's rather an unusual choice of words, especially for you. You're not usually given to such dramatic turns of phrase. You're more of a down-to-earth, matter-of-fact sort of person. Can I ask why you chose it? I don't know. It's, it's just a phrase. It simply came to mind. Actually, come to think of it, you used that expression earlier in the restaurant, said Valentine. I remember thinking, who the hell does she think she is? Claire laughed nervously. Well, so what? Does it matter? It might do, said Coleridge. Tell me, Inspector, after we left you yesterday, did you do anything unusual? Unusual? Like what? Coleridge shrugged. I don't know. Go anywhere? See anyone? Anyone out of the ordinary? No, I... Claire remembered the call from Jessie Collins and how she should have passed it on to Valentine. She glanced at Valentine and said, reluctantly, Actually, there was a call from someone who said they knew the first victim, but it was just a hoax. What? demanded Valentine. Why didn't you tell me about this? Well, I was going to, but she was frightened, really frightened. She begged me to come and see her, me, not anyone else. So, well, I was worried that if I tried to pass her over to someone else, especially to a male officer, we'd lose her. Why you specifically, Redmond? asked Coleridge. Did she say? She said she'd see me on the TV news. I suppose she felt she could trust me, that she had a connection. You know how it is. So did you go to meet her? Yes, I did. Bloody hell, Redmond, said Valentine. What part of not your case don't you understand? You should have at least contacted me. I know, and I would have, but she insisted I come alone. Maybe it was the wrong thing to do, but my gut told me otherwise. All right, Coleridge interrupted. Never mind that now. Tell me, what happened? Nothing, said Claire. She didn't show up. Are you sure? Of course I am. She could have been watching you, said Valentine. Did you catch anybody's eye? 
Why would she have been watching me? Why go to all that bother just to sit and watch me from some corner while I ate my dinner? You ate dinner there too? asked Coleridge. Yes, it was late and, well, it was easier than going home and making something. What did you have? Sorry? For dinner. What did you have to eat? Claire shrugged. Actually, I don't remember. I had a few glasses of wine and I think they may have clouded my memory a bit. You don't remember what you had for dinner last night, said Valentine. He glanced at Coleridge before adding, Is that normal for you, Inspector? No, of course not, but I was tired. It had been a stressful day. I wasn't really interested in the food. I was... She looked down and touched a hand to her brow. Coleridge noticed it was trembling. He opened the top drawer of his desk. I was... I don't know. I I can't remember. She looked up to see Coleridge levelling a pistol at her. What? Merely a precaution, Redmond, said Coleridge. You see, I think your contact did show up last night. But just as your father had no recollection of meeting Heinrich Volkmann, so, I believe, you have no recollection of meeting her. She could have programmed you to do anything, including killing us. Claire stared at him in disbelief. Wait, you mean you think she was a vampire? What happened after you finished your meal? I don't remember. What do you remember? Nothing, until I woke up the next morning in one of the bedrooms there. You spent the night there? Yes. Alone? Of course. She started, then thought again. Well, I was when I woke up. I checked the bedroom and bathroom for signs of anyone else, but there were none. And this didn't come as a shock to you, waking up in a strange hotel bedroom with no memory of the night before? Well, yes, absolutely. I've never done anything like that before. I... There was a bottle on the bedside table. It was empty. So you thought you'd had a drop too much and stayed over? Yes, exactly. But what was I supposed to think? Jesus, it's not like I was expecting to meet... Claire suddenly felt faint. Oh, my God. Did she give you her name? Asked Coleridge. Yes, Claire nodded. I wrote it in my notebook. It was Jessie Collins. I see. Well, then, it looks like Miss Collins is our first real suspect in the London vampire case. Claire reached for her drink. Now she, too, noticed her hand was shaking. She clenched her fist. Why? Why would she do this to me? Because she saw you on the news, speaking as the head investigating officer on the crime that she had committed. But once she had fascinated you, she would have realised you'd been replaced. Yes, by me, said Valentine. Claire turned to Valentine looking at him as though she just remembered him from a dream. I have to know all he knows. She turned back to Coleridge. That phrase, it's in my head, but it's not something I think. No, said Coleridge. It's something she wants you to think. It's she who wants you to be at the heart of the investigation. These are her words to you, her commands. Oh, dear God, said Claire. 
Valentine sat forward, resting his elbows on his knees. Are there any other phrases in your head that you don't recognise as yours? he asked. I don't know, said Claire, frightened now. I, I don't know what thoughts are mine and what are hers. It's all right, Claire, said Coleridge. I can help you remember everything. I told you about how I worked with your father's doctors, about how he managed to break the spell on him. Well, after Harry's death, those doctors trained me in the use of advanced hypnotic techniques. If you will allow me, I can undo this vampire's fascination of you. You'll remember everything that happened, and your mind will once again be your own. Jesus, you make it sound so normal. But aren't you forgetting, sir? These advanced techniques gave my dad a heart attack. Coleridge smiled. Don't worry, we've come a long way since then. Claire attempted to weigh her options, but she quickly realised there was only one. Will you need to use drugs? No. All I need for you to do is to put down your drink, close your eyes, and trust me. Claire swirled the last of the liquid in her glass. She didn't even like whisky, but she drank the last of it down in one. Okay, let's do it. Who is Heinrich Volkmann, an American vampire who can rob a man of his sanity and kill him with nothing more than fear? But in our next episode, we rejoin Damo Sullivan for a journey underground with unforeseen consequences. Join me next time for Season 4, Episode 11. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Fajad, courtesy of Tarane Records and our good friend Fawaz Al-Maloud. You can buy the track from Amazon and Apple Music uh, and stream it from Spotify, YouTube Music or any of the other streaming music services that are out there. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so there it was. Season 4, Episode 10, and I hope you enjoyed it. This episode corresponds to Episode 23, of Underwood and Finch Underground at Patreon. So if you fancy, you know, just going on with the story, if you can't wait until next week, then nip over to Patreon, where you'll want to start at episode 24, obviously. Uh, The monthly cost for doing so at the time of me recording this episode is a mere $3 a month or your local currency equivalent. But, of course, that could have gone up uh, at some unknown time in the future. Anyway, um, no news for you this week regarding the television series, listeners. It's still on the cards, 
and things are happening quietly in the background, but there is nothing for me to report to you at this time. I'm hoping there will be soon, of course, um, like, you know, really good news about the show definitely happening and official announcements coming soon and stuff like that. Oh, wouldn't that be great? You know, this year I will have been doing this, writing fiction and, and podcasting it, for 17 years. That's longer than some of you have been alive, isn't it? Or at least some of your children. But yeah, it, it would be... Really, really great to finally be able to say, Huzzah! Underwood and Flinch is definitely going to be a television series. But not this time, listeners. This time, there's no news. Just crossed fingers, crossed toes and crossed eyes. And that's how I'll leave you until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch. Thank you for listening. Take care, and farewell. Oh, just a quick PS before I go. As you know, I like to share with you what I'm enjoying on TV at any particular time, because, you know, we're all looking for recommendations, aren't we? There's so much to to see, and, you know, how do you select? How do you choose? Uh, Recommendations go a long way. But anyway, so we are currently really enjoying a show called The Consultant on Amazon Prime. It stars Christoph Waltz as the titular consultant and is brought to the screen by Tony Bazgallop, whose name will be familiar to any fans of the Apple show, Servant, because he's one of the key creators of that too. So check it out, The Consultant on Prime. I'm loving it. Two more episodes to go, and I reckon we'll probably watch those back-to-back tonight. Oh, such indulgence. Thank you.